The Old Testament text is the 46th Psalm. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Those of you who've been around a while know that I tend to uh, preach in an expository way, working my way through books of the Bible. One of the challenges, of course, with preaching from the Psalms is that if I were to preach through the book of Psalms, we'd be in there for three years. So I thought, well, you know, I'll select the greatest hits, or at least the ones that appeal to me. And uh, this one is full of great lines. Wouldn't you agree? There are just... Uh, lines in this psalm that just resonate. I'd like to just uh, highlight a few and provide the framework for what I have to say today. First is, of course, God is our refuge and strength. Then it's that second clause that strikes me, I think, uh, as having that resonance. A very present help in trouble. A very present help in trouble. Someone who isn't present isn't much help. Here we're told that he's present when we need the help. And uh, what's described for us here is certainly an occasion at which we'd find ourselves crying out for help. This is almost like an, an account of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. One of the things I think that is lost upon us is just how the Hebrew, Hebrews, the Israelites, uh, regarded the sea. When they looked out at the sea, they didn't think, hey, break out the jet skis, let's have some fun. They didn't see an opportunity to go out and do some deep sea fishing and maybe catch uh, some, uh, you know, uh, large sailfish or anything like that. They instead saw what appeared to be churning, unceasing, moving, chaotic setting that any given moment could just swallow you 
uh, alive, to swallow you whole. Now, uh, fortunately, the sea is bounded, but every once in a while it does uh, breach its boundaries. Uh, there are things that we refer to as tsunamis, and those are striking because of just how uh, they just kind of swell and breach a boundary and then just flood an entire area. And then when we think about just the contrast between how water is essential for life and yet can threaten life, there's this unnerving sort of, I guess, incongruity that we see with regard to water. Is it the source of life or is it the means of death? And uh, when we see the opening scene of the Bible, when we have the Lord there at uh, the creation, the text tells us there in verse 2 that the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep, almost as though he's brooding, considering that chaotic uh, swell that's moving beneath him. And that's how the story begins. And of course, what happens not so long after we see that opening reference uh, or that, uh, that, that how the scene is set, we see that the Lord separates the waters in chapter uh, 1, verses 9 and 10. And in separating the waters creates the space within which you and I can dwell. The land, the dry land appears. But later uh, in the scripture, not too much later, we, as we see with the flood, uh, the uh, waters return. There's a deluge, and that deluge is a judgment. And that judgment washes the earth clean. That uh, threat that's sort of implicit or implied by the presence of the waters, the, the fact that the, the ocean is there and is held back but could uh, return and uh, consume life, this, this sense that uh, we depend upon God to keep things in their proper places is something that I think that the, that the Israelites understood, but we've lost touch with. I think uh, most of us, I know it's true for me, I go through life more or less taking the uh, kind of this, this situation that I find myself in for granted. You know, each day I wake up and pretty much everything's where it was the day before. I don't look out the window and see the ocean uh, lapping up against my house. I remember, though, one time it, uh, something like that did occur. We had uh, some really severe weather in Connecticut, and we have in Connecticut a stream, Chapin Brook, that runs behind our house. And a tree fell and uh, blocked a, uh, 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 an underpass where the, where, the, where the brook would, uh, you know, on a, on a normal but, you know, continuing basis just pass through. And it created a dam, and of course, what that did is that created a sort of a, a backswell. And uh, I remember looking out and, and thinking to myself, well, that water keeps getting closer to the house. <laughs> and then I went down to the basement and discovered that the basement was starting to flood because we have a curtain drain that runs down to the brook and uh, the water was coming back. It wasn't moving in the normal direction. At that moment, uh, everything uh, kind of was put into a different perspective. The, the ordered world that I took for granted, I didn't take for granted anymore. I was grateful when that ordered world returned. And I think we find ourselves in the course of our lives uh, in situations where things that we've taken for granted are no longer there to take for granted, and there's a kind of impending doom that uh, is moving in our directions. And it's at that moment that a, a psalm like this is a great, a great comfort 
because it reminds us some, some important things that we shouldn't forget. That God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. I remember when I was a kid, I walked to school. I went, I, when I lived in St. Louis, I attended some fairly tough schools. And I remember praying on my way to school, God, I was like maybe eight years old, nine years old, get me through another day. Because <laughs> it was, you know, uh, settings in which I would uh, get into a lot of fights and, and uh, so forth. But, but uh, I did know that God was there and I could pray. And I think that's something that we have an intuitive sense of. And it's something that we, uh, I think, should be grateful for. Because when we think about it, when, when we put things in their, into the proper perspective, the, pr- the perspective that I think that this passage, but also the, the, the sort of the larger framework of Scripture helps us to appreciate, is that when it comes to what's really solid, what we can rely on, it's not really the stuff that we take for granted. You know, the size of the bank account, the steady employment, the health of our family members, None of that stuff is as stable as we like to assume it is. Instead, the only real point of stability is the Lord himself. And this is brought home, of course, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when there is a storm and the waters rise and threaten a home builder. Actually, a a couple of home builders. You know the story, don't you? There once was a man who was foolish, who built his house on sand. But there was a wise man, wise in a very practical sense. Phrenos is the word that's translated into the English word wise, which is, means he used his head. He had a good head on his shoulders. And he anticipated the, pros- the possibility that there could be a storm that comes along and uh, threatens to, to threaten uh, his livelihood and his home. So he built his house on a rock. And of course, after the storm that both men face and both houses face. One is in a good place and the other is in not such a good place. The Lord is a very present help in time of trouble, a point of solid uh, and stable ground that we can stand on and weather those storms. Nothing can swallow him, not even the depths of the sea. We're told next about a city did you notice this? We, we make a transition. There are transitions that are really quite abrupt in the Psalms. Have you noticed this? On the, on the one, at one moment, the, the psalmist, David, is, a, is addressing you and me. And then he's addressing the Lord. Then he's addressing himself. Then in other places, he moves from one image to the next. First, in this psalm, he's addressing the subject of the sea and, its, and, the, and the storm as it rages and its effect upon things that are taken for granted as being strong, the mountains. Now, we're, to- we're told that there is a river, in contrast, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The thing that this particular image has in common with the first is the presence of the Lord. The God, but God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved, unlike that mountain that I noted before. God will help her when the morning dawns. And then we're told about nations. Where does this come in? Nations rage, kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. There is a city whose river, whose streams, I should say, make glad the city of God. The thing to note here, I think, about a river, in contrast with the sea, is that the river is uh, bounded, it's directed, its course is determined, and uh, because that's the case, uh, it is a source of life and it refreshes those who live in the city. And it seems to imply to me that when it comes to the passions and to the vicissitudes of life, that boundaries are a good thing. When you're facing the threat of the tsunami and it's about to wash over you, do you think, you know what, I'm just not really into boundaries. Boundaries are just like so frustrating, they inhibit my freedom. Now at that point, you're like, I need a boundary. I need a, some kind of dike. I need some kind of barrier to keep that, that swell from sweeping me away and killing me. It's at moments like that, you appreciate boundaries. Boundaries are good. The sun is a beautiful thing. We don't see it very often here. The sun is an object that's in the sky. It's a flaming ball of gas, and sometimes it actually comes out from behind the clouds. I know it's just a rumor, but, uh, but believe me, there are people in the world who see it regularly. Anyway, there is a sun out there, but too much sun can kill you. In fact, there is a boundary that's invisible to the eye that protects us on an ongoing basis from the harmful effects of the sun. If we took you and put you into outer space without a spacesuit on, well, you'd die because of the fact that you're exposed to the vacuum. But uh, that wouldn't be the only thing that would threaten you, the lack of oxygen. Um, what would even be a more significant threat if you could endure uh, life without oxygen is the sun. It would not just fry you, it would uh, poison you with radioactive or radiation that would destroy you. We are protected because of our atmosphere, because of the ozone layer, layer and uh, the magnetic field that surrounds our planet. There are a number of things that, uh, that are, in, are in place which, which uh, allow the best thing about the sun to reach us and to keep the harmful effects away. Uh, and when it comes to our passions, when it comes to the things that stir us and well up within us and can sweep us away, uh, we might in the moment think that uh, we could give ourselves over to that stuff and, and face no harmful effect uh, or result or see no terrible thing come about because of that. But it's not the case. Generally, the people who think in those terms are the least experienced and naive people people who have never really seen what passion can do to a person. Your passions can kill you. Now, we live in a society today that uh, doesn't believe that, that more or less assumes that any sort of passion that wells within you, you can give yourself over to. In fact, any attempt to restrain it is oppressive, something that should be, you know... Uh, prevented from occurring. We, you know, it's, 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 it should be forbidden to forbid. By the way, that comes right out of the French Revolution, right before everybody was slaughtered. But these passions can carry you away and leave you just a shell of a human being. I've seen it over the course of my life. I'm 60 years old. 
I can't tell you the number of people I've known who've been destroyed by their own passions. Not by the conniving of other people who took advantage of them, not the oppressions of the, of the wealthy, none of that stuff. Their own passions killed them. God's law bounds our passions, directs them in healthy ways that lead to our own flourishing and to the flourishing of other people. God's law is good when it says, no, you shall not give yourself over to that. It's like the ocean. It just will open up and swallow you alive. You don't want to go there. The passion itself, when directed appropriately, is a beautiful thing, a life-giving thing. But when it just sweeps you away, it harms you and everybody around you. Now, uh, what we have here, though, is a city which implies what? Other people. There's a city, and this city has a stream running through it that makes people glad. But the city itself includes other people. In other words, we're not talking about being in the garden alone. You remember that, that hymn? Good. I'm glad you can't remember it. It's awful. <laughs> Let me remind you of it, though. It's a 19th century kind of sticky sweet kind of song. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the sound I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And I walk with him, and I talk with him, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, here's the line, none other has ever known. This is a private thing, just between me and Jesus, okay? You stay out of it. it. has nothing to do with the church. It doesn't even have anything to do with the Bible. Where is this garden anyway? Is this the Garden of Gethsemane? No. You know what garden it is. Eden. There is a naive kind of assumption about human goodness and our, our access to God that's really... I'll put it in very strong terms, Gnostic in character. I'm glad we don't have that in our hymn book. Somebody had some sense. But I want you to know, it's a very popular hymn. I, well, I've, 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 I've buried about 80 people in my life. And uh, when I've uh, done that, you know, when I've gotten together with people to, pl- to plan the funeral, it is a funeral, you know, that's not a bad word. I don't know if you've heard the term funeral for a while, but... You know, usually we're talking about celebration of life or whatever. But at the funeral, as we plan it, and I ask, what are the hymns you'd like to hear or sing? The two most popular ones that people ask for, at least of uh, folks when I lived on Cape Cod, when I buried 50 people there. People go to Cape Cod to die. I don't know if you've known that. But they, they get their, their last home, they go there, and they just die. But uh, you bury a lot of people when you're a pastor on Cape Cod. But the two were Amazing Grace. That makes sense. That's a good one. That's good. And In the Garden. And every time they asked for In the Garden, I just would die inside. (laughs) You want what? In the Garden. Because it's really all about me and Jesus. But this is a city. 
We're not going back to the garden. I don't know if you noticed that. Have you read the rest of the Bible? Have you gotten to the book of Revelation? Have you gotten to the New Jerusalem? There's a city. There's a city noted there. And what's fascinating about that city, let me take you there, in fact. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Now, to have a city, you need other people. I don't know if you've noticed that, but cities come with other people. And there are going to be other people there. It's not going to be just you and Jesus walking in the garden for eternity. And there in verse 21, we're told about a new heaven and a new earth. And I want you to note uh, something about what, uh, the description that we have here in chapter 21. When I saw, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Fascinating. At the beginning of the Bible, in the first chapter, the sea is everywhere. Now the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then jumping over to chapter 22, you see a reference to a river. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Interesting how this ties together with this psalm, isn't it? What's being, what's what's implied uh, here? I think, first of all, uh, because it's a city, uh, we are spending eternity with other people. But the other thing to note here is that the chaos and the impending threat of death is gone. And all there is, is is the life-giving character of water present, the river of life in the city of God. And what we find uh, in uh, a city of refuge is uh, a shelter from the deluge. The deluge that is occurring all around us, and in in our churches, we ought to have a little kind of outpost of that New Jerusalem here right? A place where we can find refuge as we fellowship with our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I want you to know, and I don't think this is news, things are getting kind of nutty out there. The waters are stirring in our society. I was just up in Seattle. I'm on the board of a developer there. And uh, so I was at a business meeting and we were talking about how the business is going. The business is going great. But uh, we were told in the, in the course of the uh, discussion that one of the excavators had been stolen, stolen right uh, from the work site, a $750,000 excavator. And when they reported this to the police in Seattle, the police informed them that they couldn't investigate the crime because there's no burglary division in the city of Seattle right now, you know, defunding the police and all that. Literally, that's why. Things are nuts. And it's all over the place. That's just one example. If you want to check it out for yourself, I can give you phone numbers. I'm not, this isn't hyperbole. I didn't make this stuff up. I'm just reporting the news. It's that nutty out there. And it's going to get worse. Now, how do we prepare for that? Well, I want you to know we need each other. We need high-trust communities in which believers depend on each other, 
support each other during a time like this. And this isn't the first time this kind of nuttiness has occurred. Over the course of the 20th century, we've seen persecutions and uh, criminal elements who've taken over governments. And consequently, I think, you know, forewarned is forearmed. But how do we arm ourselves? I think the thing to keep in mind is that no matter how many rounds of ammunition you have, now how much, how, no matter how much spam you've stored up in your, your bunker, uh, eventually you've got to come out and you've got to stop killing people and you've got to learn to live with somebody, right? So why don't you start with that? Start with the church. Get on good terms with other people who believe uh, the way you ought to believe that uh, God is our refuge. And he is the one who has given us a city. And what we have here in, uh, at this moment is an outpost of that heavenly city, sort of a foretaste of it. The last thing I'd like to do is uh, take you to another uh, point in the, in the psalm and note a couple of, of lines. The first ha- it has to do with a, a title that I'd like to address and, and, and uh, hopefully clear up uh, what's being referred to here, because I think sometimes language is used in scripture that is unfamiliar to to people today and that's uh this term is title for the lord in verse 11 the lord of hosts is with us now as a young christian when i thought about being a host i thought you know having a party you know inviting a bunch of people over and i i come across this reference to the lord of hosts and i would think well he's the greatest party giver of all Right? He's the Lord of hosts. Is that what this refers to? The party-giving nature of God? No. A host, the host of the Lord, is his army, his fighting force. That's what's being referred to here. The Lord of hosts is a fighting God. He's a God of war. He knows how to fight for his people. Because that's the case... Uh, we understand what's being referred to here in verses 8, 9, and 10. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. That's strong stuff. What's it referring to? I do think what follows is what it's referring to. He makes wars to cease. Makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. One of the things I think that uh, we have to keep in mind when we think about our Lord is that he's not a tame lion. You know what I'm referring to, of course, when I say that? Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there's a sense in which uh, you know, the, 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 the presentation of Aslan as a lion uh, can comfort us because uh, a lion is beautiful, a lion is majestic, and a lion can be warm and cuddly. But Aslan, and in the course of the Chronicles of Narnia, it becomes pretty clear that Aslan is the figure of Christ in that world, is not a tame lion. The lion can roar. The lion can kill. The lion can enforce his will. And we serve such a lion. There's, uh, I think, uh, a tendency for us to lose touch with that because we 
place such emphasis on the love of God, and the love of God is certainly something we should stress, but we can't stress it in such a way that we lose sight of the fact that God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, and sometimes he takes strong action to bring those purposes to pass. And he pacifies his enemies, and that's what's being referred to here, waging the peace through war. Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. How? By breaking the bow and shattering the spear and burning the chariots with fire. The Lord wages war to wage the peace. There's a uh, term that was uh, well known in antiquity, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Guess how it was enforced? <laughs> In this way, the execution of the will of the Roman people to pacify the various rebellious components of the the, the domain that the Romans uh, controlled. Now, today, we live in a time that's been referred to as the Pax Americana, the peace that's been brought about through the exercise of the might of the United States. You know how many countries we're in in terms of military bases? Far more than we're not. <laughs> I think, uh, I think that I, the last I read, there are only like 30 or so countries where we don't have a military base in this world. If we were to withdraw, what do you suppose would happen? I'm guessing wars <laughs> all over the place. The Pax Americana maintains the peace. But it's not always going to be the case. There will be a day when the United States is no more. I know that sounds blasphemous, but it's just simply true. What we really need, though, is the peace of the kingdom of God. And that's what's being referred to here. We need the Lord to bring about the peace that he can bring uh, uh, to pass. And we see that referred to throughout Scripture. We're told that, uh, that he will wage war and make his enemies his footstool, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Christ is up to, the peace of Christ through the conquest of evil and sin. We're in a, uh, an interesting time, as I noted before, a kind of great sort is going on, and all sorts of people that you wouldn't expect are no- have noticed I was watching something the other day. Uh, it was an interview with Richard Dreyfus of all people. I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Dreyfus, but a, a film actor. He's getting up there in years. And uh, he was talking about the great sort, how the country, he's seeing the country fracture, sorting itself out, kind of dividing along some very, I think, familiar lines that, that we, we see all around us. And he's afraid for our country, and he's not the only one. And you might be afraid as well. But I want you to know that we serve a God who is a very present help in trouble. And that you have a church that can be a source of refuge for you, a city of refuge. And I think at times like this, we need to remind ourselves of those two things. We need to call out to the the Lord and seek uh, Him and rely upon him for our strength and to be our refuge, 
And we need to be there for each other at times like this. I have no idea how this is all going to play out. It just might pass over. It might just be, you know, a memory 10 years down the road when we all say, weren't those weird days? We were all so uptight. That'd be marvelous if it works out that way. But it may not. And we have many examples in the course of just the last 100, 150 years where it didn't work out that way. So, be prayerful. Look to the Lord. Trust him. And strengthen the bonds that you have already with fellow believers. Develop the kind of trust and reliance that you need to have in place to face the difficult times that may be in store for us. But the thing to also keep in mind is the Lord is pursuing his purposes. And God does move in a mysterious way, and most of the time he doesn't let us in on what he's up to. I don't know if you've noticed that, but the Lord is in charge that in mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the promises that we have. Help us, Lord, to rest in you and to be still and know, as we see David say here, that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.